coming up on Art Palace. I think photography for me becomes this protective mechanism which allows me to go and touch the world. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's episode is a live recording of a conversation with photographer Sorab Hura that took place on January 24th, 2020. The conversation was led by Nathaniel M. Stein, Associate Curator of Photography, and celebrated not only the closing of Sorab's exhibition, The Levy, A Photographer in the American South, but also the release of the exhibition catalog, which is now available. Hello, and welcome to all of you. Thank you for being here um, at the Cincinnati Art Museum tonight to celebrate with us the exhibition, uh, The Levy, A Photographer in the American South. Um, I, we are starting a little late, but I'm so glad we got you all in the room, which took some time, so thank you for your patience with that. But before we do begin the discussion tonight, I do want to um, acknowledge a few folks for the roles that they have played getting us here tonight. Uh, first, I somewhat unconventionally, I suppose, I want to thank all the many guest speakers and participants who helped make the public programs around this exhibition so rich and often so profound. So the Friday and Sunday afternoon chats that took place around the picnic table in the gallery, in the exhibition gallery, for me truly became uh, moments to pause, to be with art, and to be in conversation, um, which certainly for me is uh, really one of the highest goals for what we're doing here. Um, so that was a good time. Um, I'd like to also thank Cameron Kitchen, who's with us tonight, who is, of course, the director of our museum, who has spoken and written with eloquence about the meaning of the levy in this place that we live, um, and who also saw the importance uh, of the mu museum's acquisition and exhibition of this work early on. So thank you for that, Cameron. Um, Thomas Schiff, whose uh, generosity is simply a fundamental force for photography at this institution and in our community, more, more broadly speaking. Thank you, Tom. Here some. Thanks, Tom. Um, and P Peter and Betsy Niehoff, who unfortunately could not be with us tonight, whose support helped make possible the publication of the exhibition catalog, which I'm delighted to see is in some of your hands already. Um, I'd also like to express my gratitude to the contributors uh, to that exhibition catalog, many of whom were also on the journey that the book deals with. So artists including Jim Goldberg, Anne Millet, Alex Soth, Mikhail Subatsky, and of course Sora Pura, writer Chris Claytel, and my colleague in the photography department here at the museum, Emily Bauman, who has also been instrumental in making sure you're all seated this evening. Um, so thank you, Emily, as always. Um, knowing that a conventional exhibition catalog just would not do for this body of work, we co-published the exhibition catalog with an amazing independent press based in Chicago called Candor Arts. Um, and they have been exemplary creative partners, willing and eager at all times to explore every possibility with me, even though sometimes I know I ask them to explore possibilities that were slightly beyond the pale. Um, Candor designed and indeed handmade a book that I believe is a beautiful thing unto itself, regardless of what words and images are inside it. And sitting among you tonight are two of the people whose hands actually did that work of making the book. So Hannah Batzel and uh, Katie Chung of Candor Arts, thank you for making that book. We're over there. In the 
And finally, I'll thank you for, for joining me and welcoming to Cincinnati the artist whose work is the genesis of all of this, Sora Para. So with those important words said, um, so Rob, let's jump into the conversation. Um, I actually plan to say a bit about to sort of set the stage for folks about the project and your work, but I think given the fact that we're a bit behind schedule, I might abbreviate that a little bit. Um, but just to um, you know, give us some basic groundwork for conversation, you were born near Kolkata and for many years have been based in Delhi in India. Um, you're a self-taught photographer who works in the fine arts sphere as well as being affiliated with Magnum, which as many of you will know is the most renowned entity in the sphere of uh, what would be most easily described as photojournalism, although that's a a small word for a very complex process or or practice. Um, And it is through your connection with Magnum that you were invited to participate in Postcards from America, a project um, that has been going on since 2011 to 2016, and it was in 2016 that you were invited to participate in that project. Um, Do you want to say a little bit about what Postcards for America is, or should I? Um. I mean, first, I just want to say something. Sure. When I saw the PDF of the book, I, I didn't really, I just skimmed over it because I wanted to kind of experience the book um, in person. But then I had a quick look at the word of, um, you know, the acknowledgement page. Um, I've always been working on my own and like all my books I'm designing, I'm doing everything. Now my father helps me to kind of carry the books to the post office, so that's the only collaboration I have. Um, but it was the first time I saw, like I realized how small a tip of the iceberg that I had kind of experienced uh, it was. Um, when I saw the whole sort of list of people, including you know, um, Arlo, who's his son, and Ansley, you know, uh, given that, I mean, these are things that uh, many of us don't really acknowledge, so I'm really glad that I got to see what it takes to kind of bring everything together, and I'll leave it up to you to explain so talk about, about the okay. postcards. Okay, mm-hmm. we have actually been talking behind the scenes about how complicated postcards is and how neither of us want to explain it, <laughs> because whenever you explain it, you're invariably offending someone who is potentially part of it. However, I will go into that territory <laughs> as a sacrificial lamb in this conversation. Um, okay, so basically, a, a group of mag- Magnum-affiliated artists um, privately organized road trips in the United States and in, in America um, from 20, starting in 2011 and ending in 2016, where they were thinking about um, making photographs that perhaps for some of them were about saying something about contemporary life in the United States, um, perhaps for some of them thinking about maybe that we haven't had that kind of body of work since the, the Depression era, FSA photography, um, a, a body of work that does that with a certain kind of rigor and um, intelligence. Um, for others, it was more about uh, a kind of playful, collaborative way of working, um, being on a road trip together, and all the things that you can imagine would go into that. Um, so, And for others, it was um, perhaps more intellectually motivated and thinking about, um, you know, impasses around documentary, around, around photography, around making photographs of others, around making photographs in places that you are not from, um, what, what is involved in that practice and what are the, the kind of um, risks and potential sort of violences that come from that practice and, and wanting to think about how do we push through those impasses? You know, how do we not drop photography as an as a endeavor because it is problematic in some ways. How do we continue on? Um, so there's a whole range of ideas about why people go on these trips, and, and indeed there's a whole range of different kinds of works that, that come out of them. Um, however, 
2016 was the last trip that Postcards made, and it was focused on the lower Mississippi. Um, so in April 2016, um, a group of photographers began traveling from all sort of corners. You started in New York after you had come from India, and other people started from the West Coast and, and different places in the United States to meet at the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi River um, rivers in Cairo, Illinois. And the notion was to follow the course of the river from that point down to New Orleans. And then some people went even farther. You, you went to Pilot Town. Um, so there was a, a lot of variety in the routes that were taken. But basically, that was the structure of the trip. Um, this was not a part of the country that you had been in before. So you certainly have been in the US before, but not the Deep South, not along the Mississippi River in the Deep South. But your father had, in a way. And this is sort of a critical uh, turn in the, in the body of work. So two months before you were there in April, so in the winter of 2016, your father, who was, who was reti he's retired now, so it was, mm. a, um, a captain of a merchant marine vessel, um, was piloting a ship up from the Gulf of Mexico up to the port of New Orleans. So because of immigration law, that means that if you're, if you're on that ship, you cannot get off the ship. So his father was on the river, but was unable to get off the ship. Whereas Sorab, two months later, was on the land and at many times felt, whether figuratively or literally, unable to reach the water. So you have um, this sort of coming very close to one another on the other side of the world, yet always seeing from different perspectives, always over a divide, one man from water and, and the other from land. And the significance of that circumstance, I think, kind of emerged for you over the course of the trip um, and through feedback from your fellow travelers. Um, and what we encounter in the gallery here, the levy, the body of work that we encounter in the gallery is your pictures, mm -hmm. which reflect your impressions and your experiences on land. Those are the black and white photographs that line the walls, but also some of your father's pictures, which were taken from the ship. Um, those are color pictures, which are on a white uh, wall in the gallery, together with phrases that you receive from him in... Uh, I probably WhatsApp messages, not yeah. text messages. Um, and those are uh, handwritten in his handwriting. And there's also two maps in the gallery, which are your, your renderings of the, your, your parallel journeys. And you hear birdsong, which is a recording that you make, made um, while you were traveling. And not just... Not just Mississippi, right. So that's sort of the lay of the land in, in terms of the, the uh, project. Um, to me, this always seems like a body of work that on one hand is so deeply and totally personal, but on the other hand is touching all these big shared human experiences, the experience of being in an unfamiliar place and finding a way to sort of come to terms with it, which is something you do a lot. Um, and also the, the, the sort of pain and joy that is about relationship, whether between parents and children or specifically between fathers and sons. Um, and I've also sort of tried to help people or tried to frame this for people as a, as a work that really asks us to think about the nature of one's perspective on the world um, that one moves through um, and all the sort of capillary factors that shape one's experience of a place and the way in which one would make pictures in the flow of that experience of a place. So that was a lot of information and there was no question in that whatsoever. So let me, so let me uh, move on to a different line of approach. Um, so I've mentioned now that there is this... this um, this relationship with your father that's involved in this work, and you've actually already mentioned your father as someone that's helping you take your books to the mm -hmm. post office. So, you know, this is a, you've described it to me as a difficult relationship, but also a relationship that's very important to you, obviously, and central, a central relationship in your life. Can you help us understand a little bit about that relationship with your father and what you began to understand about it or, or see or feel about it when you were along the river? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure if I really understood it at that that moment when I was along the river, I think um, 
um, a lot of things were happening, a lot of realizations were kind of coming in much later, you know, when I was uh, putting everything together. I think, I think for me, honestly, um, um, in a way, in a simple way, it's just to acknowledge a certain a difference in the way we look at the world. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have our fights and we do have our arguments and so on. But at the same time, it's also about building something together. And uh, for me, um, I think, and this is something which came up in our conversations, you know, when you are asking me questions just for your own knowledge. Because um, I began photography because of my mom. She wasn't well and and uh, for me, photography was uh, therapeutic. It was like catharsis, and and all this while, I ended up ended up thinking that you know I've taken to photography because of her. But when you were asking me questions, I kind of realized that it was actually my father who gave me the camera when my mum wasn't well, when I went off to the mountains to make postcard photographs of sunsets and so on, which made me feel really good at that time. But then once when we were talking, I also kind of realized that he'd also given me a camera when I was nine or ten years old. And I've, there's a photograph of my parents that I'd already taken at that time. So in a way, like, he'd already been part of the journey for a long time without my having ever realized it. Um, and while I was on the trip, um, I didn't know what I was doing. For me, it was just being there and actually responding to it at, that, at each and every moment, you know. Um, but then... I was talking, I just happened to mention my father and his journey up the river two months before me the, uh, to the rest of the group and they just sat in silence and they were like, you know. Why didn't you I mention mean, this before? <laughs> no, as in like, yeah. you know that there is something happening, mm-hmm. you know. And I think, um, I'm sure there was something happening because I kept talking about my dad and that he was up the river and um, and and kind of, you know, he had told me, to kind of very, in a sort of an informal way to just see what, like he never got to see the city, New Orleans. He never really got to see what was happening. So he just told me, you know, just tell me what what's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, like I was kind of taking some photographs, but n- not with the idea to kind of put it together and to make sense of it, maybe the way I can make sense of it today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and for me, I think it's... Um, in a way, like, I made my first book to give to my mum where I could say something without... I'm not very good at articulating things verbally, so I sometimes end up making books where I can write, where I can actually give these hints, uh, have these little gestures that might say that, you know, you know, I kind of care or I'm not happy with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, I think... Um, for me, the book, um, the work, um, kind of is that sort of a gesture for my father to kind of mm-hmm. acknowledge that I acknowledge his way of seeing things mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. I think to me it's it's always been quite beautiful to see actually how you incorporate his pictures and his words. And it, to me, the way I've described that to others in, in the gallery is that it feels by the, end, by the time you get to the end of the body of work, you feel you two sort of reaching for each other through photographs, which is something that you are actually instating by including his, his, his images and his words in the body of work, which I think, as I said, is uh, really, I find it quite moving. Um, 
speaking of which, uh, the last phrase that one encounters, um, usually, depending on how you install it and how, how you order it in a book, is, is the phrase, um, tell me what's, when you get the chance, tell me what's beyond the levy. Um, again, a phrase that you've extracted from your father's words. And I, I will say, and to me, that is an incredibly powerful phrase from a father to a son that, that call, pulls in all kinds of ideas about um, mortality. I know you know I was talking about death with my son last night, mm. so there's a context for this. But um, you know, mortality. You know, the idea that you will go beyond him in some way that you can see in ways that he can't, and his really acknowledging that, which is amazing. I mean, you've described him to me as a person that doesn't necessarily um, articulate his feelings freely, um, but I think he does in some ways. See, I think I need to sit with you for yes. a little longer and get to know about my life so because I'm realizing been, a lot. Yeah. So what I've always been curious to ask is when you went back after you, you made the pictures and you decided these are the phrases that I want you, that I want my father to write so that they will be in this body of work, mm-hmm. what was that conversation like? Um, I mean, what was it like to sit? Would you just sit with him when he was writing? Yeah, but see, my father's a practical person. So half the time he's like, who buys these prints? Who, why would anyone be interested in them? We, we do. So, you know, like, so, when, I mean, he'd send me these messages and then I kind of told him that, you know, um, because I think one of my methods is to write. Um, I could have easily just taken extracts. Uh, I mean, I could have just printed out his messages the way, as if they were SMSs or WhatsApp messages. But somehow, for me, like in my larger sort of way of working, uh, very often handwriting becomes a part of it also because sometimes it reveals pauses or, you know, uh, it reveals whether someone is trying to make the handwriting look good. So it, it gives me this extra layer of not just the words, but also a sort of... Um, like the gesture? A gesture, mm-hmm. but also uh, the frame of mind. Mm-hmm. You know, so the words for me become a little different in that mm-hmm. sense. So for my father, when I first asked him to write for me, he wrote me really long paragraphs, but they were in shipping vocabulary. They were mostly about, you know, the current flowing, but using scientific language because he kind of knew that I was asking him for something for which he wanted to end up performing. So even in the other book, I've noticed this with my mom as well, uh, where, um, you know, one of my previous books, she had written for me, and uh, it was around her dog's death. But then when I asked her to write, um, she wanted it to be very good English. So her her vocabulary, her language was very different in it. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, I think both of them are quite self-conscious because they know that I'm making these books and uh, they also want to be part of it in a certain way and half the times I'm telling them that just write really bad English if you can. That's so fascinating Uh, because you know that you know in the books where you're where you're talking about you know your relationship with with your mom as she's going through mental illness I mean it's so interesting to think of her later being concerned about the appearance of her handwriting and the words that she's using because she's so completely vulnerable in the photographs. I think my books and my work have also become ways for me to in a way, connect with my parents because I think my life is so different. And then uh, it's the one thing that we kind of end up connecting on. And even my last book, I was I was trying to do everything on my own, but it, it was just convenient to take it to my mom's house, everything, instead of carrying it up four stories to my, you know, big boxes, to my place. Um, so my parents will sit together and they will 
you know, my father, it's his responsibility. Like, he'll call me and say that, has that box reached Tippy Bookshop in Belgium? He doesn't know Tippy Bookshop, but he knows the name. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it gives him mm-hmm. something with which he can enter my life. Mm-hmm. And same with my mom. So um, when I was photographing her, towards the end, I think she was kind of having fun. So she would, with Elsa the dog, she would say, take this photograph, and then she would start performing a bit, you know? So mm-hmm. towards the end, I think it became a sort of a... I think my parents also end up, I think, uh, there was a tendency to kind of perform, but then I had to kind of just say, you know, it makes more sense if you just let go and just be who you are, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so even in the writing, uh, he'd already... When he had sent me those messages unconsciously, these are the words from those unconscious messages. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, when I'd asked him to write, he wanted to write really well for me because he thought that um, the people reading would really appreciate reading about, um, you know, shipping forecasts and and the movement of the current and um, certain signals that are sent out during certain times and... Um, but I wanted to be more human and, you know, wanted to be who he was without uh, being conscious right. of it becoming something. So at some point you had to sit down with him and say, no, no, dad, this, write, write this. Yeah, uh, I mean, sometimes I have to be a little strict okay. on that. And he, but, said, uh, he said, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, I mean, he didn't, he was like, but this is, this is so ordinary, you know. Uh, so, whereas I find it extremely poetic. So yeah. So uh, again, difference in perspectives. Yes, yeah, so. yeah. It's appropriate to the body of work. So, um, sort of a related topic. One of the um, Friday afternoon conversations that we had in the gallery, we had a, a, a guest who led an amazing hour, where actually it was a, a primarily members of staff who went to that one, and we all had our minds totally blown by this experience. Um, but it, it was. She was thinking about all of your work, not just a levy. Um, and she really, she's a person that works in the mental health sphere and deals with people, um, helps people that are dealing with experiences of tra- trauma in their past. Um, and she saw your work, you know, instantly. She just sort of turned to me and said, "He, this is, to me, to her way of looking, this is about healing. It's about him putting things back into order. You know, she was thinking about Sweet Life, which is the body of work that's about your mother, and then the levy, which, you know, in the context of that understanding is, is about your, your relationship with your father in some ways. So she really thought it, of, of it as photography as a process of, of healing for you. Um, and, I'm, you know, I know it's not, always, it's not always fun to hear a mental health professional's assessment of your work when you're not there, but I'd be curious to know about your, your response to that. But also, you know, if she was talking about healing and putting things back together, but I am always struck by the ways that you, to, to my sensibility keep yourself so raw and vulnerable in your work so it's like on one hand we have someone observing healing and processing and coming together and and I am also seeing you really intentionally holding yourself and pushing yourself into a place of vulnerability and openness to to pain a lot of times um you know you told me you know I don't remember when it was but a conversation since you've been here recently about that, that people were trying to make it easier for you when you were coming to the to the deep south. They were trying to find, for example, connections to the diaspora community for you to to sort of feel a way in, and you didn't want that. Can you talk a little bit about keeping yourself open and vulnerable in that way? I think I was having a brief conversation with someone outside as well when someone asked me if if what I do, if they could call it street photography or call it something, 
to help you know understand or put it somewhere where they can make sense of it and i said that for me i think photography becomes a way to it's a it's a privilege in a way because i think um without photography i would have been quite nervous and hesitant to really go out and meet many of the people i'd photographed so in a way i think photography for me becomes this protective mechanism which allows me to go and touch the world so in a way like when i it was suggested to me obviously i also don't want to be bracketed into being the south asian person who's coming in so might maybe i can go and photograph patel motels or something like that mm-hmm. um i think i really was wanting to be like an empty vessel which could be filled up with whatever there was you know whether the experience is good bad uh, however it was i think i wanted to experience it um and um that was my only sort of uh, criteria you know mm-hmm. uh, it was also something which was difficult because we were on the road trip for two weeks how would i make sense of what i was doing there in just two weeks when i don't know the country at all i mean in my previous visits had just been in in Rhode Island you know in New York and that's about it you know mm-hmm. um and everyone talks about the south of the US being a completely different place and at the same time i was aware that i also came with my own prejudices hearing about the US <coughs> about the violence this is 2016 um my father warning me you know like be careful so i mean i think there were a lot of things around me that would make me assume a lot of things so it wasn't so much about my me kind of consciously making myself raw or vulnerable it was more trying to keep that in check whether i'm still an empty vessel or am i kind of filling myself up with all these other contexts that are being thrust upon me which could be a matter of opinion mm-hmm. or perspective or you know could be a fact but uh, what was i getting out of it so I think that was also the only way I could take responsibility for what I was doing. I think in the end uh, I've always worked so much in India and and uh, I've worked in Australia as well but uh, mainly in India and um there's this constant need to kind of peel away at as many layers as possible because you know so many different contexts but in a way I had the luxury of uh, being kind of ignorant to an extent mm-hmm. and I think uh I was not being weighed down by baggage in a way that maybe some other people in the group may have been um and and that became like uh quite a for me a very uh relief of a starting point you know so which is why uh in our first conversation in Cairo in a diner where actually I I feel so bad I forgotten the name of this one photographer from Cairo who Alec had brought in uh to introduce to us with this amazing book that he had done there um you know before he came along I think people were in general talking about loss of tenderness because of the way everyone at that time was being around all different political campaigns and somehow for me the first thing I could say was that actually I, I saw so many bird houses you know uh in in front of each house and that feels really tender to me you know um and 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 i think i can imagine the same for someone who's coming in from the outside to india where i might feel that uh, right now it's things are really bad back home you know but someone else can come and actually notice some of the good stuff without 
that baggage. Mm-hmm. You know, it could also be ignorance, but I feel that sometimes we need to let go as well of certain things to be able to reach somewhere else. And um, in a way, um, for me, not so much about it's not so much about being vulnerable, not vulnerable. It's about how much I'm holding back and how much I'm giving, and at the same time, how much am I allowing myself to experience? You know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that makes sense, but um, that's my process, unfortunately. <laughs> so do you want to talk a little bit about from, from that state that, that it seems to me you, you are, it, it actually takes you a fair amount of energy, I think, to kind of keep that. It's a hard state to be in. It's hard to kind of keep other forces from filling up that space. What did it feel like to you? to be in in either the United States or the American South in particular? What did what was what were you getting? Well, um, it was a mix of things. I think we talked about it like in the beginning, um, um, I was very conscious of being an outsider and I think I've mentioned it to you at home a few times about how um, um, I think the structure I mean, the historical structure of the way people move uh, has been such that um, from our part of the world, there's not that much of a movement outside. I mean, there is to an extent, but it's very different from, say, when you hear of all these expeditions that would go out, you know, mm-hmm. to see the new sort of world. It was always happening from one part of the world to another, you know? Um, and um, even within photography, it adds into it where um, the, the structure was such that we usually don't go out of the country that much to photograph, you know. Um, even in Magnum, sometimes when people are, when I get a message from them saying, can you go for this assignment there? And I'm like, ah, you know, I need a visa. You need to give me a few months notice. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the restrictions that kind of, they kind of push me into working in a certain way, so um, and also experiencing things in a certain way. So coming to the U.S., you know, going through a certain visa process, I've also been rejected once, um, not by the U.S. Actually, the U.S. was the easiest place for me to get a visa, but by the U.K., where they wrote to me saying, "We don't believe you're a photographer. We don't believe you'll go back," um, and I had no way to prove that I was a photographer. Like. I, I, I still don't have a credit card because apparently I'm, I'm, I'm not... Employed? I'm not valid. Yeah. You know, for, um, so, you know, these are things that kind of stay in some form or the other. And, and, and um, so in the, in the beginning, I was very nervous because you recognize that there's a different system with which things work. I don't want to get caught crossing a road when the signal says red and then be deported back home. You know, I mean, this is a joke, but somehow these things are there at the back of my mind. So in the beginning, I was quite nervous, um, of course, with my own sort of preconceptions to an extent, no matter how empty I wanted to be. Uh, and then um, I think something inside me switched where I just felt like this is an amazing opportunity. Like I was in places I would never be in before, and um, I took a risk, risk once where I went to a group of people um, where it seemed like other people were a bit hesitant to go, and they were looking at me, and, 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 and before they could say anything, I just said, I'm from India. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they just said, the country? And I was like, yeah. And 
I'm a photographer and you know I would love to take photographs and I want to get to know certain things and so on and they it was very easy to have a conversation mm-hmm. and I think that broke the ice so by the end of it I would just go and say I'm from India <laughs> I'm a photographer and you know like I've come to actually you know explore this place um I think that became a sort of a crutch that eased um a lot of things just just knowing that it's um it's actually also me having to take a few steps and and mm-hmm. just you know not being awkward about i'm i'm usually a very shy person mm-hmm. so um that helped me to kind of get over that awkwardness and and in the end like it was great because i didn't have to kind of box myself into being a lot of indian photographers they work on diaspora outside india i think it's that one point of connection and i somehow from the beginning that was the only thing that i didn't want to do I think I wanted I was open to everything else uh because I also have this complicated relationship with my identity of being Indian you know because that's the question I mean politically that's the question that's quite relevant today back home mm-hmm. who is Indian who's not but also in general when I think about it you know I'm here talking English I'm wearing clothes in a certain way um I was I was telling people back there that uh, I grew up during my puberty mtv came into india you know so there's that influence as well which of course mixes into the influ- mixes with the influence of my grandparents telling me stories you know uh, indian fables uh, reading amachatra katha you know mm-hmm. um, i mean i'm basically what you call a khichdi it's uh, an indian dish where everything is kind of mixed mm-hmm. it's really delicious but um <laughs> but there is no categorization as such it's comfort food so in a way that's what i think i kind of feel at ease with mm-hmm. so that's what i was trying to work with okay. um it's also been told more by others less less by you so i'm i'm curious to know your 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 reaction to this has been as it was explained to me um the four freedoms group which is a an artist run political action committee which was also which was just getting started in 2016 so there was this real synergy between uh some of the values of the postcards from america group and some of the values of the four freedoms group and also there's some there's some jim goldberg as it was hank wells thomas's teacher so there's a lot there's some connections there between the the two groups and um on this particular trip the photographers all the photographers who were on the trip received uh shooting scripts which was which is of course a reference to FSA era photography when uh documentary photographers working for the FSA would get lists of things from the guy who ran that operation Roy Stryker to say what what he wanted them to photograph and um you know really as a as a gesture towards that history and also i think to sort of see what would happen if that 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 uh process was repeated everyone got a shooting script that one and yours you told me although unfortunately you lost it so we could not put it in the book but um you told me it was it was about um freedom each was about religion. the four the freedom of worship right yeah, so abortion. one of the four freedoms that uh roosevelt outlined in the in the 1940s um and it was as it was explained to me i think none of the photographers took those I mean these are all world class photographers who really don't need someone else to tell them what to photograph but each I think for each person they opened them they thought about it that was it was interesting maybe it provided as as Jim Goldberg told me a way in on the first day to you know how do you start dealing with this world that you're in um do you want to talk a little bit about how that how that's script so what what are the other three freedoms again uh, uh, this freedom of worship freedom, freedom uh, of worship the equality freedom from want freedom from fear freedom fear from fear and what is the fourth one 
surely in this room we have the four of freedom somewhere. But the thing is that, um, I mean, so I got freedom of worship. I wasn't really able to separate the freedoms because for me, each one was, I feel each one is too linked to the other. You know, I, I'm not able to really uh, separate one from the other. And I think this has a lot to do with uh, maybe coming from back home where uh, it's very difficult for me to really isolate one issue from another because um, the too many overlaps, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I did kind of respond, I mean, when I did see the person holding the mattress, for example, uh, there was something extremely um, powerful about carrying a certain burden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think by then, I'd al- already realized that um, religion and this whole... I and mean, you'll have to excuse me for stereotyping uh, in my own way, but I felt like it was all quite biblical, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a certain way with which people were writing words in the middle of the fields, you know. Uh, there, were, there was always messages somewhere or the other. And um, I think I had already kind of um, gotten into that rhythm of maybe looking at the landscape in that sense. So the photograph of the person carrying the mattress, it was a huge, it was a huge mattress. Um, and it was... Uh, he was walking in an extremely gentle way. For me, somehow that felt, uh, this whole idea of carrying burden, mm-hmm. you know, uh, um, whether it's burden of life. Later on, I realized that he had that Madonna sort of uh, right. T-shirt. Looks like an angel. Which yeah. actually, I think people in in the rest of the group, they, uh, the rest of the people in the group, they noticed it much before me, the, the, mm-hmm. the, um, sort the t-shirt, I, the because I think it, yeah. I'm not so used to actually working off identifiers, which, you know, um, they were more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. For me, it was just, um, this whole act of carrying a certain burden, um, with grace, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I resonated in terms of, um, not so much worship, but more in terms of religion, whatever religion could be, whatever you might worship. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also made recordings, actually, of a conversation with the taxi driver uh, of New Orleans. I did many other things which I felt um, were actually talking about um, the four freedoms, you know, in a more sort of uh, comprehensive, holistic way. But that was my take. But eventually I kind of gave in um, this one single image uh, just to respond mm-hmm. to the what I'd been asked for. Right, and so that was the picture that was exhibited then yeah. in, in New York in a show that was um, a, sort of inaugurating the uh, uh, Four Freedoms um, uh, movement, if you will. Um, I, I think you know part of, part of the reason why I am curious about that is to, you know, there are a lot of pictures of religion, per se, in actually in the levee. And as, as we all know, religion is a huge part of the American South, both historically and in the present. It's a very important part of what, what it is about to, to be there. Um, I, I guess um, I'm curious about what way, in what ways that felt either familiar or not to you. Um, you know, as 
I'm, again, I'm exercising my own generalizations here, so forgive me for that, but India is also a place where religion is tremendously a part of everyday life. So were there, were there points of connection in that for you, or did it feel like a, something foreign or alienating? How, to, how would you characterize that? I think in a way it was, maybe it was so familiar that I wasn't so conscious about the fact that I was adding in a lot of religious photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, or with motives that could allude to religion uh, beyond a point because somehow the familiarity went beyond just religion or certain cultural thing. I think even the landscape down south reminded me of certain landscape back home in India. You know, going through Mississippi kind of reminded me a bit of, of Bihar in a certain way, which was these flatlands. I mean, you have a lot of rice fields there, but there was a certain flatness to it. Um, it gets flooded every um, every year. Um, it is one of the poorer states, but at the same time, it's a very politically astute state mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, I think the gray skies, uh, the flat landscapes, not so much the trees. The trees were very different. different yeah. But um, that and, of course, you know, a certain way, some other more south I went... I don't know. Uh, I also ended up feeling more comfortable. People seemed to be generous and quite warm. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 uh, I mean, the one thing about this country I felt is that uh, people are always having conversations. <laughs> so, which has been the one different thing, and that that's been that was quite great. That um, I think it was those things that were more familiar to me uh, consciously. Um, not so much because I think in India I would ignore the religious part mm-hmm. I think consciously I would put that aside uh, there's just too much of it at times um, and and I think we all have grown up with it so uh, I'm not even that conscious of it at the moment you know it's um, as much as I might want to call myself an agnostic atheist whatever non-religious person the truth is that um, we all have grown up uh, with a big presence of rituals or, you know, my grandfather would chant Om every morning. So he would, you know, count his Rudraksh. Um, so somehow it's all religious, but at the same time it doesn't feel religious. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing there. Mm-hmm. I think it wasn't so much about religion as such, but it was more about an earnestness or a belief. I think um, maybe also photographed certain motives so in a certain way because of the way people spoke to me um, I think there seemed to be some sort of hope there seemed to be a certain earnestness with the way the, with which the, with which the people would um, I think uh, want to know mm-hmm. what I was up to there mm-hmm. um, maybe that felt familiar mm-hmm. I don't know I mean if that makes sense but. no absolutely it's, it's interesting to hear your reflections on that so I have um, it, it, we're conscious of time, so I have one, one question that's a more direct kind of question and then a, then a last one that's a little bit more, we'll see what you make of it. Um, a, a lot of people ask me throughout the, throughout the course of the exhibition to explain on your behalf, since you are not at that time here, so now you can do this, um, about um, some of the, what I would broadly describe as a formal decisions that go into the photographs. For example, why are they black and white and not in color? Um, how, how, why don't you just answer that? Well, so... I think for me, uh, it might be 
I hope it's not too complicated, my answer. For me, like, um, the language I use with photography uh, can be very political, you know, the vocabulary. So my last book, some of my books are on the table. Uh, my last book, The Coast, for example, uh, I'm very um, consciously using a photographic language that has a certain history of, um, for lack of a better term, being candid, you know? Just, and, to, just to fill in, the coast is a very intensely color. Yeah, and it's violent in a certain way. And, and because I'm looking at this idea of violence, I'm looking at the idea of uh, building narratives, playing with narratives. Um, um, I wouldn't really call it fake news because I think it's more than that. It's about power. It's about who controls information, who's the one disseminating information. So in a way, I've also used a language that feels... Um, has feels raw, it's violent, but at the same time, it also is seductive in a certain way where it might want you to be also be a warrior to what's happening. But of course, I'm kind of playing with the context, you know? So in a way, I'm a sort of a puppeteer. Um, and similarly, like my first book, uh, Life is Elsewhere at that time, uh, this is something I realized much later. Even that book is up uh, in the gallery, um, uh, which is all high contrast, black and white. It's more in the surrealistic direction. Um, for me, I realized later that I was actually escaping a certain reality from home. I think I was trying to talk about my mum, uh, but I think at that time I may have been so embarrassed about you know, her having schizophrenia and, and I might have felt too vulnerable to really be direct about it. So in a way I felt, today I feel that that, is a sort of an escapist work. Mm -hmm. And then I was working with children, and then I kind of loved the way they were sort of um, uh, very, um, in a very carefree way, they were moving when they were photographing, and they were not really, they were not stiff. And I was starting to feel like I was getting extremely stiff, being very conscious as a photographer. So I kind of tried to take on that sort of a language, you know, mm -hmm. children's kind of, broken sort of a language in a way. So the work also became color, it became more direct, because I think it was also about confronting a space back home. Uh, I'd also started to feel more at ease talking about home. Uh, I think all of those factors kind of came into play. So um, when I was coming to the US, um, I think in a way, um, in the context of what I could have done or not done, this black and white, but the black and white is also not high contrast. It's more gentle. Mm -hmm. um, was also are actually incredibly warm. Yeah, so it was also for me a more neutral space, and I think that starting point may have allowed me to um, maybe um, that starting point would have allowed me to, you know, find something rather than already having some sort of intuitive uh, starting point where I knew. Not quite what I wanted, but I knew which direction I wanted to go. Because that's what happens at home. Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of respond. It's like a build-up already that's happening. But coming to the U.S. for two weeks, there was no chance of a build-up. You know, so in a way, one reason was that. The other was just a practical reason because very often I just work with what I have, mm -hmm. and um, I work a lot in borrowed cameras. And someone had given me a lens for this camera, and I had photographed someone's wedding dinner and turned out to be a friend and I was very awkward about taking money and he gave me uh, that camera. So I just went with it and 
sometimes I'm happy to just go with it and see what comes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a mix of these two, you know, when I was considering it and uh, it felt like I could, uh, I could allow for things to kind of come in uh, mm-hmm. in a more gentle way. Uh, because I think it's a bit like the whole idea behind Tai Chi where you're actually taking the energy and you're kind of giving it back into the universe. I didn't want to just give. I also wanted to, you know, take something and and respond and be able to give it out, mm. but in as gentle way as possible because I was very aware of myself being the outsider, so mm-hmm. I couldn't trust it upon someone. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a, a, a kind of a reserve in it in a way. Yeah, I mean, I'm holding something mm-hmm. back, but at the same time... I think it gives me more, that language and the way of working gives me more um, space to maneuver the finer details, mm. you know. Um, mm. I was very conscious of not also doing certain, because I don't know the politics of the landscape completely. And I think in a way um, that would allow me to absorb things that I didn't know, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm going to ask you one more question and then we'll open it up and see if there are, are things that, that everyone gathered here would like to, to like to know. Um, one of the, another one of the gallery, the sort of uh, events that we had in the gallery uh, was a really interesting conversation, an interfaith conversation um, about um, how we can think about how to, how to sort of live in hope in a world in which there's a fair amount of pain, um, which is a suggestion, I think, in your work in, in, in this body of work in particular in, in a number of different ways. And one of, the thing that came, one of the things that came up in that discussion and one of the things that has been sort of an obsession of mine in writing the essay for this book is about water and particularly about um, the river, not, not necessarily just the Mississippi River, but the river, broadly speaking, metaphorically speaking, in, in some ways. And, you know, being along the Mississippi was not the first time a river had played an important part in, in your life or in your work. Um, you know, all the folks that were gathered at that gallery event had some really interesting thoughts about the meaning of the river from a, from theological perspective and, and, and other perspectives, and there are many ways to think about it. But can you say a little bit about either what r- the river has meant to you in, in your work, um, or another way I might sort of put that is, actually this occurred to me fairly recently, that a lot of your work has to do with journeys in some, in some way, um, potentially... I don't know, it makes me wonder sometimes, what, what are you looking for? That's a separate question, perhaps. But do you want to talk a little bit about the river or the journey as, as something that plays um, a role in your work? Well, with the journey, I think, um, you know, the journey is always happening. It's going on, always. Uh, I think the flow of time, in that sense, um, gives me enough pauses to consider and reconsider where I am. So if I'm... If I'm talking about a journey through time, you know, um, my autobiographical journey in that sense. I'm conscious about certain moments where I might have been in a particular state. Mm-hmm. And it also allows me to kind of recognize some other moments later down the line where um, I might be out of that state, you know. Uh, and, and, and in a way, this thing of stretching out time um, even a journey along the landscape for me becomes about time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it allows me to know that there is something that lies beyond. It's not so much the physical, but it's about me experiencing something along the way. I think this going back and forth 
which this stretching out of um, time or physical journey or whatever um, is important in general in my process because um, because I think photography works at very, lots of different levels. Um, one is I could be working photographing intuitively, but I'm putting something together with a very different logic. But by the time I've stopped, by the time I moved on from that act of photographing, my understanding of the space, the world, you know, my experience has changed. Mm -hmm. So I think this this um, method of elongating that experience mm. allows me to kind of reach some sort of an equilibrium after mm. considering where I began from, where I am right now, who am I doing it for. I mean, my even my books themselves were a journey in a way where I had made my first book in 2009. I couldn't publish it. I got the money in 2015, but I had moved way beyond the work. I didn't like the work. So I had to kind of consciously publish it for the 20-something-year-old me mm -hmm. who could not afford to do it back then. Right. So I think these are the kind of uh, resolutions that I can sort of come to when I elongate my uh, time space uh, through this notion of journey, you know. Um, regarding the river, um, yeah, my, when my mum wasn't well, I think I was visiting uh, the Ganges. Um, it's also a photographer's playground in India, so it, it, it worked in, in all kinds of ways. I was learning photography there, um, but through the learning of photography, where everything, you know, at that moment, it was about decisive moment. So focusing in a particular way was kind of um, uh, distracting me away from my mum. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that helped. Being, I would sit next to the river, the flow of water, you know, listening to water. I think all of those things helped to calm me down. And you're right, I mean, I do end up gravitating towards the element of water quite a bit, um, even the sea. You know, I think maybe it's about not being settled, maybe it's about being not being static. Uh, and in a way, I think uh, when I think about myself, um, even the way I'm questioning things and re-questioning things. I think one thing I'm very conscious of is that I am who I am at this very moment when I'm having this conversation with you all, but maybe after a week I might be a different person. Maybe this conversation is going to actually trigger something off. And um, throughout my journey, I have like lots of different inflection points, and those are very important to me, um, which is also the reason why I keep revisiting some of my older works. So in a way, my none of my works are ever really quite complete. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's always a revisit to something which I might have done in the past, and then um, I look at it very differently. Mm -hmm. And I need to kind of acknowledge the difference. Okay, thank you. Um, I feel like I've, I've monopolized you for long enough. So if we have some some questions in the audience, I think Zaraba said he'd be delighted to answer a few questions. Um, it is about 10 after 8 now, so we're a touch behind schedule. So maybe we'll take three or four questions if there are some. Um, I should let you know that we are recording this conversation, um, but just to allay any fears that may cause in you. If you do not want to be identified on a recording, don't identify yourself when you pose your question. And nobody will ever know who you are. So feel free to pose questions with, with a careless abandon. Yes? I was struck by how parenting is the same the world over. And the one uh, comment your father made was something that I probably have 
asked, paraphrased to my children, and the comment was, if you go to New Orleans, be careful. I hear it isn't safe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, in a way, I think children are also the same everywhere, where I see Nathaniel and Ainsley kind of uh, with Arlo, and he's running around, and uh, I keep thinking to myself that that's exactly what I did, you know, when I was a kid. Um, I think it's also parenting, it's, yeah, I mean, uh, it's about care, but at the same time, I think it's also about... Maybe if I have a kid, maybe I'm at the moment happy to uh, explore everything and to really touch places that I might not have been to before. Maybe I'll also, if I have a kid and my kid wants to go out and to a place, you know, uh, where I have the slightest hesitation, I might sort of um, put that out. But at the same time, I think it would be my kid's role to kind of maybe make me feel that it's not quite what I think it is you know so um, I found New Orleans to be an amazing place you know uh, it was beautiful it was uh, charming it was uh, people were amazing and, and, and it has its share of uh, problems and um, like anywhere else I think it's not any different or any more dangerous you know um, how my father might have thought. Very often, I think, the more dangerous places are closer to home in some ways, where, which we take for granted. When you as a child said what I would have, my children would say, which is, I'm going to spread my wings. Yeah, so I think it's always this dialogue, you know, and maybe that's what Nathaniel, maybe that's the reason why he wanted to show the work. It was more about a dialogue and um, also to maybe acknowledge that um, we also always making sense of the world without really knowing about the world in a way and maybe the world could actually be a little different if we reach out a little bit um. Yeah, you mentioned the first book you made was for your mother and I was curious if you could share how she received it and also um when you published it and shared it with a larger audience, how was that for us? Um, so actually, yeah, that's... Uh, uh, I first made a book because I didn't have a computer and I had to actually take my work somewhere. So I made 10 books. I had not... When I photographed her for the first time, I felt really guilty about it and I actually threw the negatives away um, because I felt that I was doing something wrong. Um, and then at the, I was also at the time working in the villages in India uh, where, you know, a lot of kids would die out of malnourishment and a week after, like, they would all want to share their stories with me thinking I would change the world and um, I had to keep telling them that, you know, uh, nothing would change and yet they were generous enough to share their stories with me. But then after a week or so, I would go back into my safe space in Delhi, be out with my friends. So there were these two parallels that were happening, which was on the one hand, I wasn't able to really um, photograph my mum, And then uh, at the same time, I was struggling with this going back and forth between, um, you know, being with people who were really 
leading a hard life and then going back into my safe space and my own privilege. So um, I, I attempted to photograph my mum as a way to earn my right to look outside. Um, and it was very hard. So, But when I made the book, I had a few photos of her, but it was more to do with the writing, where I wrote about how much I hated her when I was growing up, how embarrassed I was. It was the first time I wrote it. Um, and um, I made 10 copies. The first one was given to her. And I was quite scared. I thought that she would um, flare up. Um, but then she really loved it, you know? Um, and, then, and then she was quite encouraging of me to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, in the beginning, it was, I, I kind of felt like she would be the one person who would hold me accountable because I could go to a village, make the photographs, come back to the city, do whatever I wanted to do, no matter how responsible I was trying to be there. Um, but there was no one to actually tell me that, hey, we don't like that photograph you've taken of me. So that was a period where I was going through all of these questions. Uh, but then I realized that my mom, no matter how bad I made her look, she would love it because I was, you know, her son. Uh, so it kind of backfired. And um, what ended up happening in the process was, I remember the first time I showed the work, um, you know, my voice would actually quiver and my body would kind of shake because it was very hard to kind of talk about it. But then I realized that um, nobody talked to me about photography. Everyone talked to me about having someone in their life, some parent, some uncle, aunt, friend, sibling, who was going through something similar. And I think that really helped me to come to terms with my own life, you know. Um, so the healing actually happened outside the photography. It happened more in terms of maybe other people got a point of entry to kind of talk about, to share something with me. It became more about other people telling me about their, their lives. And I think that, listening to that made me feel not so alone. And um, that was the journey, you know. Uh, somewhere towards the end, I feel maybe I became too much of a photographer, so that was another dilemma that I had. I'm always going through these dilemmas and I'm always tied up in knots, but um, that was a very important inflection point, um, even in terms of realizing lots of things, also about power behind the camera, you know, uh, who's the person who's making the image. Um, accountability, you know, uh, like today I don't, I don't believe in the idea of ethics uh, because I the way ethics gets used, it's this codified set of rules which I haven't made. And it's this universal rule that kind of gets applied everywhere. Whereas I choose more to think about whether I'll be able to take responsibility for what I'm doing because each context is different. So uh, that experience of photographing my mom, uh, having the book which became the sort of a conversation with her, you know, to be able to say things to her that I could not really speak with what I had written, and her kind of acknowledging it by telling me that I should do everything, you know, and, and that she feels proud and she loves the book. And um, in a way, like, that was a conversation that we had without really having a conversation that we were meant to have, you know. And in a way, that's why I feel glad about whatever I'm doing, whether it's making books or uh, it becomes like this is an excuse to do something which I might not be able to do.
So I think um, given the time and the fact that we'd, we'd like to, to give you the opportunity to sign some books, we should probably have other folks that, that have questions ask them at the table, which you'll, you'll be sitting at in a moment out there. Um, but before we do move into the Miro Gallery, where, where Sarab will be signing books, there are two books available. One is his photo book, um, The Levy, which is his um, representation of his own work. The other is um, the exhibition catalog for the show that's, that's here. Um, the, the book that was produced with Candor Arts, both are available. I, I have to, you've told me that your, yours is almost gone, so if you want this book, I'm just alerting you that this is your opportunity probably to get it right here. Um, but before we all step outside, um, for everything that you've shared with us tonight and over the past many months, um, I, I thank you. It's been an amazing experience, and will you all please join me in thanking so much? Well, Well, the candor books is also by Nathaniel, so I think you should also get it signed by him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. The special exhibition on view right now is Women Breaking Boundaries. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Ofrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum.